Hello and welcome to FRT, the IIF podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Conan French, and today I'm coming to you from Basel, where I'm at the Bank for International Settlements Innovation Conference. They've convened central banks and representatives from the financial services technology community to highlight some different projects and pilots that they have testing new technology around the world, and also more generally explore how technology can help central banks and financial markets transform how they operate. The theme this year is technology innovation in an age of uncertainty, and that has certainly been a, a well-chosen theme given the last couple of weeks that we've been um, going through. But it is you know, wonderful to be able to step back for a couple of days and think about the bigger picture and the arc of how technology is transforming the economy that we're serving and the financial services industry. I'm delighted to be able to talk today with Subnemdu Mahanti, who's the Chief Fintech Officer at the Monetary Authority of Singapore. He's here at the BIS Innovation Hub as well. And I can't think of anybody who's probably better positioned to think about that global arc of innovation and the role of central banks. So Subnemdu, thanks very much for joining us. And many of our listeners will need no introduction to you at all and know your work very well. But for those of you who may be new to it, could you give us a little bit of background on yourself and, and what you do for the MAS? Good morning, Conan, and uh, good to see you here. And uh, we have been uh, interacting with each other at every significant conference uh, we think matters to all of us. And myself, as a quick introduction, I'm the Chief Fintech Officer at the Monetary Authority of Singapore. I do policy, market infrastructure, market development, and many other things, especially global partnership on many critical projects uh, in the space of innovation. Well, you and Ravi Menon at the MAS were early in this focus on innovation, but as you think about all of the peers that you that we're together with in the room today and this global push of central banks, what's driven this work on innovation and maybe how it has it evolved over the years? I will take this last part of your question because how it has evolved. And if you think yesterday, the Innovation Summit, I would have not believed, uh, I mean, if, if you think about our meetings at uh, DC Roundtable, and when we brought the topic around digital assets, uh, digital currencies, it was almost a topic which central bank felt it's not their area. And there's a lot of uh, question mark. And you, you look at yesterday's event, almost 70, 80% of the content is dominated by digital assets, digital currencies, how we can think, think do differently. So definitely has evolved. Uh, the way I always look back and see that when it comes to technology and innovation, it is always way ahead of a problem statement. So you either anticipate an unmet need or you think things can be done better while there may not be an urgent need to do something at that point of time, but you got to stay ahead of yourself. So because of that complex challenge, you always find yourself in a point of vulnerability of being questioned why you're doing what you're doing. But we have gone through the cycle and you're saying that innovation has moved from not only within the central bank, also to the industry, to the public sector, and the whole public rail infrastructure, you were in G20, you have seen how it becomes a big part of that whole discussion on digital public infrastructure. Part of that came from the last six, seven years of journey we all took together. And I want to pick up that theme of public infrastructure and digital infrastructure a bit later. But what are the approaches that you see central banks taking now? You know, yesterday we heard a bit about some pilots, partnerships and labs. I think of that as the mix. But what do you see as approaches that are being taken and maybe, you know, some that are the most successful in your mind? You know, I, I don't want to sound pompous, but, but uh, in 2016, we started this approach of partnership with the private sector. We realized that we may not have all the skill sets and the necessary insights to do this 
new work. So we took approach of a public and private partnership. We created marquee programs like Ubin and uh, many other similar names we created. And all this marquee program generated a lot of public interest, private interest, and that partnership was a very good model. It allowed us to think in multiple ways. Not only it, it helped us to define what problem we're trying to solve for, it also gave us the right balance on how we move about doing this experiment, whether it is public infrastructure or digital currency or trade finance or thinking about data exchange platforms. All we started with the public-private partnership in mind. And if you look at what BIS Innovation Hub has done, it has taken the same path. It has set up centers in different parts of the world. It is working with the local regulators and local ecosystem to come with programs like Mariana, Dunbar, all our private and public partnership programs. So this approach of, uh, of creating marquee programs with a particular theme, bringing all the ecosystem player together is the approach which every central bank is picking up as they go forward. So that theme of public-private partnership, it was great to hear that so prominently featured yesterday. It's certainly been something that Cecilia Skingsley and Augusta Karstens have been talking about, the, how the, the public and private sectors need to work together very, very closely. And in fact, much more closely than I think we've seen perhaps in the last wave. Central bank digital currencies are certainly an area where banks are very interested in, in what's being worked on and developed. Some concerns as well as we think about the sustainability of business models and risk models and how transitioning from deposits to CBDC wallet services may change that. So I think there are a lot of areas where you know banks are a little anxious as they look at the planning and would like for even more you know direct and detailed conversation. I think. You know, yesterday we heard about and ran through a number of the different pilots and projects that the BIS Innovation Hubs around the world have been testing. MAS has been a core player for many of those. How do you think we'll be able to improve or further strengthen that public-private engagement, particularly around central bank digital currencies and other areas where there are you know, very significant and detailed roles for both sectors to play and making sure that they're coordinated and that innovation lanes are well connected. These things are essential. So what are some things that, you know, maybe we'll see going forward to better connect these sectors on this work? Uh, well, uh, while the private-public partnership is happening, one thing we've got to watch out for, are we implementing anything? Because ultimately, you've got to ensure that whatever experiments you are carrying on, as a path to implementation. If you don't have that path clear in your mind, even if it's not clear, at least directionally, if you don't have that in your mind, you may end up in a long period of experiments with no real end game. So that's one thing to watch out for. At least in Asian market, the central banks have at least, may not be 100% accurately, a defined and implementation path of why they're doing certain experiment. Let's take the example of digital currency. The best example are in Asia. You look at China, they implemented an ECNY and they're experimenting with real customer, with real ecosystem. You look at India, they implemented e-rupee. They are putting out there in public domain, deploying retail CBDC, and they're getting real ecosystem feedback on how they want to build that product. So, and in, if you talk of MAS, we are also putting together a lot of plans on a public domain like purpose bond money. So you look at all these experiments, they're not within the boundaries of within the closed door ecosystem of central bank. It has gone out in the public and also to the ordinary customers or consumers. So having that path is perhaps a need of, of the hour today because we have spent last three to four years, a lot of experiments. 
We don't need more experiments. We need some glimpse of a fast implementation. You are seeing Asia, some of this example, we need to do more. And that path to implementation, you know, uh, you mentioned two of the major developments in the Asia, re Asia region. The ECB seems poised to move forward and Europe is looking very, very seriously. And it, you know, all indications are that we'll see things you know, move forward towards implementation this fall. In Europe, the U.S. is still, I think, in consideration and evaluation mode. One of the questions that people ask is, what's the, the policy objective here? What is the advantage of the CBDC and are the instruments fit for purpose? It seemed yesterday that that question is you know, constantly being asked by central banks as well. You know, any observation on that mix as you, know, you and your peers and others think about the role of the central bank in the future of money? Conan, it's quite funny that I talk about a path to implementation. And if, if you have been last two years, all these meetings, everybody dismissed retail CBDC has no place. It's an irony. These are the only two products in the market in real implementation. So that's an interesting irony of how experiments, innovation, and, and your thought process don't really uh, align. When it comes to why we care, definitely on the wholesale, wholesale side or the wholesale CBDC side, it is absolutely clear. I don't think there's any more ambiguity that the financial market infrastructure, when it comes to wholesale payment and settlement of assets, there is a need for rethinking. And that rethinking can be supported by a DLT infrastructure, a smart contract, and a wholesale CBDC. I don't think we have to go back and debate on that anymore. Yesterday, you saw that all the concerns people have on the privacy issues, on the, on the resilience of infrastructure, these experiments have demonstrated there's a way forward. So, and also private sectors like Partior, the DBS, uh, JP Morgan experiment, uh, infrastructure, they're all in the market today, willing to play along. So there's not a debate on the wholesale CBDC on should we or should we not. I think we all agree we should go forward and get it into the market as soon as possible. The only question mark which was on the retail side, I think large market where they have a particular use case, they'll push through the retail CBDC. And let me tell you my example, own personal example. I used European in India and I have used in some, some trial merchant uh, site. I found that fa extremely fascinating because it is a zero settlement and reconciliation money is a bearer instrument. I can actually give somebody cash in a digital form, especially in the low value uh, segment where the cost can be close to zero. There is a, there's a real use case for such, uh, such instrument. Example back to the Indian market. India has got a huge market, huge distribution uh, uh, system. Some of the issues like fake notes can be addressed through this process. So there is real value and real opportunity in getting things improved by introducing CBDC, whether retail or wholesale. I do understand retail CBDC is perhaps applicable to large market with large distribution need, but not for small market, highly developed banking system. But wholesale CBDC is no doubt in my mind, it is the future of financial infrastructure. And I think that point of making sure that the instrument is fit for purpose, fit for the objective and the need that society has, certainly in the European context and, and other markets, I think that the commercial banks who spend so much time with the customers are customer facing, really know and understand a lot of their drivers and concerns and some of the challenges of extending product have looked at it and want to make sure that the CBDC, you know, which will take significant effort and cost by central banks, but also by commercial banks and others in the ecosystem, that we're designing something that customers are going to want and use. And yes. I think that's one of the challenges is at the end of the day, if it's not really something 
something that meets customers' needs and serves the purpose, then will have been a very unfortunate episode. So as we think about moving forward, you mentioned real a couple of times. I agree. Things are getting real, which is exciting development and making sure that these things are fit for purpose and good extension. I just want to quickly add to that point because uh, one of the residual debate on this space is who issues the CBDC or there are different topics, whether it's a central bank digital currency or the tokenized deposit. I think there are this residual debate still on. If you recently look at what Augustine Carson is talking about, unified public ledger. Quite interesting that BIS actually puts from the public domain that they are interested in unified public ledger, which is to me is very bold approach to think differently. Now in that unified public ledger, Augustine makes an argument that that could be a provision for a CBDC, that could be a provision, a provision for a, as a commercial bank backed digital currency. What clearly states to me that, I mean, this clearly says that you need a new form of money, a new form of, form of instrument, which can make settlement process far more efficient than today. So I think that evolution of clearly defining the, the, the form of money you want in this new ecosystem is a win already. And with BIS announcing UPL, to me, we have crossed that uh, red line. I agree, that's a very significant speech. Uh, maybe we'll put the link in the article here for this podcast as well. People should definitely check it out. And it is very well considered, you know, after many years of consideration and study and evaluation, it is a very detailed articulation of a strategic view of how the future of tokenized assets, mm. deposits, and money would all fit sure. together. So definitely recommend people look at that. Wanted to pivot now a little bit and think beyond just central banks. You know, the MAS is an integrated agency, and so you serve many different roles in the financial system. And when we think about the role of the public sector a little more broadly, and think about how the public sector over the past few years has been an active player in driving innovation, you know, whether it's open data frameworks, you know, which started with open banking, digital banking licenses, the G20 payments initiative and the 19 building blocks being brought forward by you know, many of the organizations housed in this building as well. But that role of the public sector really trying to push and drive innovation, thoughts, reflections on what you've seen and, and where this is going. Sure, Conan, this is, I'm quite obsessed with this whole idea of digital public good. And it has been my obsession for the last four or five years in this job. And in, in 2017, uh, MAS at the Singapore FinTech Festival wanted to champion the need for a digital public good under the four category, a digital ID, an interoperable payment system, trusted data exchange, and a citizen-centric customer consent system. Largely inspired by the India stack and our own uh, stack in Singapore, which also followed both, both this stack follows the same principle. And we saw that almost a fundamental infrastructure required for the sector to leapfrog to the new digital economy. And while, while we mooted that idea at the Singapore FinTech Festival, but we could not gather a global attention to come together and think about as a public good, as a coordinated response. Well, I do see that a lot of standards talked about, CPMI standards talked about the different blocks of payment services. But keeping aside that, I was obsessed that we should do something about it, just implement a real interoperable payment system, data system, if you can. So as part of that disappointment in 2016-17, I decided uh, that we should do instead of multilateral, let's go and do a bilateral connectivity and see how it works. 
So we took the Singapore payment system, which was a proxy-based payment system where you can pay each other by just addressing one proxy number and three clicks, zero cost. With Thailand, which had a similar infrastructure, we did the Thailand payment connectivity, Singapore-Thailand connectivity in three years' time, long time it took to get the policy aligned. But we connected those two systems. Immediate impact, in immediate impact for every $100 a migrant worker sends back money home, now they have to only pay $3 as against $15 or $20 previously, and also illegal channels. After that success, we went and connected with India, and India went live at the G20, uh, at their G20 meetings a couple of, a month back. I found that particular moment, very historic moment. I think PM Modi, in his recent uh, speech at a conclave, lists out India's moment, and he picks up the UPI Singapore connectivity as India's moment. There's a huge deep value to that statement, because the India Singapore connectivity of public good is an is interesting global template. It shows two countries with different policies, standards, capital control rules are able to connect their payment system, moving money seamlessly, instant, at a cost around 3 to 5%. So we could leapfrog ourselves with all these complex local challenges and still able to connect up digital public good. So I think in many sense, it is a personal satisfaction for all of us that there is a way forward and we can actually make a better infrastructure to connect the digital public systems. And following that, BIS now is in a position to lead this project called Project Nexus, which brings all the five ASEAN market to connect their payment system as a step forward. So clearly, the direction has taken its own shape, and we're quite happy that the whole digital public good is picking up global attention now. One of the things that I think Singapore has focused on and has done very well is identify those places where public infrastructure is really needed, but supports private and sustained innovation. And I think that that's one of the things that as I look at how this focus on digital public goods and digital public infrastructure moves into many other markets around the world now, I think that's an important principle to keep focused on. And I'm a little concerned about the sustainability of innovation, not necessarily in the green sense of sustainability, but how do you ensure that the private-led innovation that has transformed you know, so much of our society continues to have those incentives to do well? And I think that you know, the Singapore model of what the state does and what the private sector does is you know, always very carefully considered and consulted. And so that's one of the notes that I just raised is that you know, there is some, I think, temptation to adopt something that's been a great innovation that's come out of private investment and to sort of move it one time into a single model. But is that really sustainable for the continued, the pace of change that we've seen continues to accelerate? Digital economy needs that constant innovation and improvement to keep delivering those great possibilities. So as you think about how do we strike that balance and any thoughts in the global context? Conan, I can tell you upfront, the Singapore model cut and paste is not going to work. I would admit that it is a much sanitized environment to do all this thing. Plus, there's a greater willingness to inject capital, whether from public side or private side, to do such things. But the best way to look at this, what India has done, I mean, 1.5 billion people with the extremely challenging environment, if they could roll out the India stack, the UPI and the, in, the Aadhaar for 1.5 billion people, it clearly shows that Technology with the right policy intent has no geographical restriction. It can, you can put it in any market if there's a willpower. Now, what are we learning from those things? One key learning for me is that when you think about public infrastructure, don't solve everything for the 
society by building a public infrastructure. Our role as policymaker or, or, or the state is to provide rails, not to build the trains or the product which runs on the rail. If there is a temptation always to go all the way to the end product, we're going to find some kind of a red line where we stop. Whether it's India stack or whether it is Singapore stack, we always think about rails. We don't think about end product. Once we provide the rails, the private participant will have the right incentive to build products on top of it. Because what you've done by putting rails, you've taken up structural expenses out of the systems, which means the products are going to be cheaper, services will be more affordable. So if you think about the end product as an affordable, accessible, inclusive product, the biggest cost rise on the foundational rail. If you take it as a state infrastructure, build it, let public private sector innovate on that, then the balance comes out beautifully. Of course, the private sector will pump in money if this is real. And that way you can recover some of this cost constraint you have. And India has shown the example, a way out. Singapore is doing well in the same fashion. I see the same approach Thailand is taking, Malaysia is taking, Indonesia is taking. So the ASEAN market have figured out a way to do it. I'm sure that is a sustainable template. But the trick is you should know where is that red line to stop. And I think that's essential is communicating in advance a lot of public-private consultation over what should the roles be, where are those lines. I think an understanding and commitment that being able to maintain and upgrade those rails on yes. a constant basis so that they can support the flows and the need that need to come and making sure that that's done again in a sustainable way where it's scalable, responsive to market and society and citizens' needs. And that, I think, is, is key and the to same argument, success partnership. Conan, the same argument was made on the CBDC. He made an argument, if central banks build CBDC, are they going to maintain for the rest of the life uh, the CBDCs? Because it involves technology. Technology can be outdated. Technology needs to refresh. Uh, will you have the same motivation to keep it going? And the argument is not, not, a, not a bad argument. So we've got to be very careful when state puts money behind infrastructure, the commitment to keep it fresh, keep it updated. So that boundaries have to be clearly crafted so you know that it is optimized for the right incentive. So the maintenance happens, the refresh happens, or else you'll end up in a legacy system while the rest of the world has moved on. You've articulated perfectly those concerns and trade-offs, and you know it will continue to be something that the IF and our members will be raising as we talk about this future of money and who does what yes, in the ecosystem yes. for CBDC and the future of payments. Well, it's been delightful to uh, be able to spend some time and get your views on the future of innovation, not just at central banks, but in the public sector in general. So thank you very much, Sapnamdi Mahante, and tune in to other episodes of FRT Podcast wherever you get your podcast. Thank you.